whoever you are. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michelle Murphy. So basically this angel volunteered to carry my naked ass gingerly to the bathroom and like hold my taint like hovering above the toilet as I peed, you know? That and more, but before Fuck shit, like fuck you bitch, thank you so much, you're an angel. Oh, Michelle, reel it in, you can thank me later. Anyway, that and more. But first, one of our listeners named Ellen recently sent us this note with their donation during our struggle to keep Risk running. She said, I'd love to donate to Risk, but unfortunately, I don't have PayPal. Is there another way I can make a donation? I almost fell for the bystander effect of, oh, I'm sure other people will donate until you called out that exact sentiment in the inappropriate behaviors episode. So you got me. Please let me know how I can contribute. I would be heartbroken if risk went away. Thank you. And thank you, Ellen. Yes, if you don't want to use paypal.me slash risk show, there are other ways to help fund risk. First of all, you could become a Patreon patron like Brenda Gonzalez and Courtney Cogburn. They recently did. But if neither of those options work for you, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com and like Blanche Dubois and some dude from an insane asylum, we'll figure something out together. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show.
Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is 1960s sex kitten and Margaret behind me now, but in 1983 with some pretty late-stage disco there. Everybody needs somebody sometimes, and that's because we're calling this week's episode The Kindness of Strangers. We have stories from two women finding precisely that. Well, I'll tell you something. Speaking of connecting with strangers, we are, oh my gosh, (laughs) so happy to report that the first ever Risk Presents What's Your Story event took place in New York last weekend, and people were just over the moon about it. I mean, there were a few people who actually said it was one of the best days of their life. There were people who actually did end up getting back in touch, staying in touch with people they met there. Almost all of us hung out for hours afterwards. We really think we have a winner with this event, and we can't wait to start doing them all the time and traveling around with them, too, and doing them for different kinds of groups. So if you have ideas like, ooh, do one for queer women or do one for people who are 40 and up who are single or do one for social justice activists, feel free to email me at kevin at and keep an eye on wristdashshow.com slash live where the next ones will always be announced. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Kara Lopez-Lee when she was at our fabulous monthly L.A. show in April of this year. But before that, Michelle Murphy shares a story she told at our June show in L.A. Michelle first fell in love with performing when she was cast to play Jesus in her seventh grade pantomime production of The Stations of the Cross. (laughs) So... Michelle may have peaked too early, but you be the judge. Here she is now with a story we call Celebrating the Shit Out of People You Love. The who is a group of bachelorettes. The what is a hurricane. The when is pending right now. It's coming for us. The where is a beautiful city, Oaxaca, Mexico. And the why, I guess, is open to interpretation. I would say the climate crisis, but it's like totally up to you, you know? So two years ago, I found myself in Oaxaca for my friend's bachelorette. This was not my first bachelorette, and it certainly wasn't going to be my last. It turns out that during COVID, while I was deepening my relationship to puzzles and like trying to commit to just finish one of them. My friends were deepening their relationship to their partners and getting ready to take the next steps. Uh, And the puzzle thing is just a cover for the fact, like I was doing my civic duty and staying in, you know, but I was single. I was like really, really single. And it wasn't an intentional 
like eat, pray, love or live, love, laugh or discover new age music or like whatever people do when Stella's getting her groove back, you know, like the reason I was deepening my relationship to being single is because I was just like deeply single and it was non-consensual. Um, I had been gearing up to propose to my boyfriend before COVID and we lived together. Oh, you're going to love the next part. And he dumped me over email. <laughs> yes. And everyone asked, so I'll just get ahead of it right now. The subject line was, hey. So there you go. Um, but we, we don't really have time for that story tonight, you guys. And believe me, no one is more disappointed than I am about that. But um, as, as like utterly lame as it was that he chose to break up with me over like www.gmail.com, uh, it was also a real challenge because... I actually really loved him. And there was a pang that I'm not proud to admit I felt when I was at these engagement parties and weddings and celebrations that were all about coupled love because I had wanted that path with him. Obviously, we would be swingers. Like, Jesus Christ, we're not crazy. But, like, I still, you know, I still wanted to do the thing with him. But that's just, you know, that that was that and whatever. But so that was years before The Bachelorette. So there had been some distance and some space. There was a softening. So I was really excited to get together for my friend Corinne. And we stayed in this like big, beautiful villa. It was like a hotel that was rented out just to us. And there was mezcal and mole and a pool and sunshine. It was just like fucking perfect. And everybody was so great. I met I met this woman named Dana on the cab ride to the hotel and she was sweet and funny and kind and she told me that she was a pelvic physical therapist, which I didn't know existed, but like, God bless, it should, you know? And I, I remember thinking she was so supportive that like, if my pelvic ever needed anything, I would trust her to hold me up. This is called foreshadowing. So like, she was great, right? And then I met this like babe named Serenka from Australia. So obviously she's just like fucking hot and chill. And she passionately but logically told me that if you see like casserole sized spiders in Australia, you just don't fuck with them and they won't fuck with you. And that they're like critical and beautiful for the ecosystem. And I was like, I still am not going to Australia, but like I respect your passion or whatever. And then I met up with my friends from the Bay, Mike and Stacy and Sophie, just like my three besties. And it was just like amazing and perfect. And then on the third night, the friends and I got together and we were orchestrating a very lewd, masterfully directed, I was the director, that's my bias, a musical sketch about all the men Corinne had dated before her soon-to-be husband. When I felt just like a pain in my back, and I was like not totally honest about the five W's that I used as a literary setup earlier, so let me just start over again. The who is me. The what is chronic illness. The where is in my blood. The when is like literally all the time at the most inopportune times. Uh, and the why, I think it's genetics. Happy Father's Day. Have you sent the card yet? It's too late if you haven't. So <laughs> I have this rare autoimmune disorder that is called ankylosing spondylitis, which sounds like a Harry Potter spell, but is surely not as fun as one. In the medical field, they call it bamboo spine because your spine is like so rigid and straight. So some people, they lose all mobility in their spine and it fuses and they have to use a wheelchair who have this disease. For me, for now, having ankylosing spondylitis means that every month or so, or just like honestly, when the fuck ever, or when the most important thing is happening to me, I am hit with an episode of blinding pain that is so paralyzing. I'm usually bedridden. 
I can't move like a centimeter. I have to call in sick to work if I'm lucky enough to have like a salaried understanding job. And I basically have to rely on any warm body anywhere to bring me like a banana so that I can take Advil with it or whatever, because you're supposed to do that. So it's, it's pretty rough. And I've tried everything to kind of manage this disease. And it took me years to get diagnosed. Uh, a lot of doctors just kind of sent me away because they were like, oh, this is really rare. There's no way you have it. And it's more rare for women, so there's no way you have it. And I was like, is it? Or just like, are women hysterical when we tell you we're in pain, you know? Uh, I think it's that one. Um, so the worst part about ankylosing spondylitis isn't even the nerve ending pain. It's it's the unpredictability of it. And then the deeper question of like, did I do something to cause this flare up or could I have prevented it if I tried hard enough? And I would transport Humira injections across the globe and stab my thigh every other week. You know, I would do yoga and Pilates according to some experts and then stop yoga and Pilates according to other experts. Like <laughs> not exercising could set it off. Exercising could set it off. Like eating gluten always sets it off. Not eating gluten is something I've tried really hard, not as hard as I should have, whatever. That's like the next, that's not this story tonight either. Anyways, so I've like done a bunch of fucking shit for it, right? And every event that I'm invited to is eclipsed with the fear of like, what if this is the time that I can't walk or think or see straight or like honor any of these commitments or have a good time because it's when ankylosing spondylitis strikes. And do you guys remember that like total ham of a guy I told you about like a while ago, you know, he like broke up with me over AOL instant messenger. Um, <laughs> One of the things I loved so much about him is that he had a really deep understanding of these life-changing health issues. His was much more dangerous and more formative. And so we related on a number of things, but mostly we were like, oh, we share this frustration with our physical limitations and we wanna push through them despite what the doctors say and still be able to like enjoy and live life and relish in it and travel. And so, when I met him, I also thought I found a partner who was an equal, who would understand and not pity me or be resentful when there was caretaking because I would do the same thing thoughtfully for him. But whatever. Anyways, I'm in Oaxaca. I'm high on magic mushrooms. I don't remember if I mentioned that already. And I am orchestrating the most sophisticated improvisational theater that this planet has seen, right? And the pain, the pain comes. And nerve pain is like electric, like it just like, it murders you essentially. But chronic nerve pain starts a little bit more subtly. Like if nerve pain is an unannounced visitor who's like banging on your door, the chronic nerve pain is like, they're like driving around the block looking for your address and you can hear the hum of the car. And you don't run to the front door and say like, it's me, you know, you're looking for my home to ruin my life. Instead, you just like lay in bed and close your eyes and pretend it's not happening and that nobody is coming over unannounced because that's fucking crazy, especially in 2023. We have cell phones and shit, right? So the point is I was in deep denial. I like did not want to have an episode. And also I wanted to party with my friends and this was my vacation time. You know, I used all my PTO on this. I'm a single person in my thirties. My money isn't for me. My money is for wedding attire. My money is for airfare. My money is for Airbnb deposits to celebrate people who have dual income. This is just like how it works. So I, I'm just like not ready for it. And then at 2 a.m., the pain sets, and it's now the, it's the visitor is at the door, and it is so bad, and I am screaming, and I am sobbing, and my best friend who's sharing the bed is like, is this bitch having an exorcism? Like, what the fuck is going on? And she's terrified, because she, she knows I have this condition, but she's never seen it so up close and personal before, right? So 
I try to sleep. I think I get 13 minutes total. And the next morning I wake up and I'm like, shit, it's here. It's landed. And I have all this FOMO because I'm going to miss these sentimental events for The Bachelorette. I love that shit. I love feeling circles. You know what I mean? And I was so naive that my, my biggest concern was FOMO because we, we then learned that a hurricane that we had previously been told was like, no big deal. Just a coastal kiss, you know? Like, it's going to dodge the city. You don't have to worry about it. Well, then we were told it's coming straight for the city, fam. And that every flight out of the country was going to be grounded for the foreseeable future. So chaos ensued. 16 women and one fantastic gay man scrambled to figure out what the fuck we were going to do. So everybody's out here trying to figure out, like, how do we get out of the country? I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to leave my bed, much less the hotel room, much less this country. Like, I just do not know. One by one, some people start booking, like, a late-night bus ticket. And I was like, there's no, I can't even move. There's no way I can get on, like, a roller coaster carnival eight-hour just jumbling my spine, like, fucktron, you know? Like, I'm totally fucking screwed. So I'm, I'm not feeling great about that. And honestly, as I see every bachelorette who has a partner, which is every bachelorette on this trip, call their person and ask for help with logistics and planning and also just like a personal safety check-in, you know? I start to feel really sad and really scared. And I realize like, I just so want to be able to call someone who cares as much about me getting out of the country as I do and as a romantic partner would. And I just really wanted a teammate in this crisis. But I also had immediate needs and they were to piss. Uh, that was like really challenging. I remember Dana, the angel I told you about earlier, she, pelvic therapist, in case you forgot, and I also said there was foreshadowing, so I'm really surprised that you guys like haven't remembered that. So basically this <laughs> angel volunteered to carry my naked ass gingerly to the bathroom and like hold my taint like hovering above the toilet as I peed, you know? It was pretty intense, and she is really good at her job if you need a recommendation. So she does that, and then, like, Saranka, the babe of an Australian woman, is like, hey, I'm going to, like, abandon my flight to Australia to stay here with you through the storm wherever we can find a place to stay in Oaxaca. I, I had met her three days prior to this. Like, what? And all these women, everybody who's still at the villa is running around to help me. They're bringing me food. They're bringing me microwave rice bags so that I have a makeshift heating pad. And things are happening. And I start to realize, like, even though I don't have a romantic love, something is brewing, you know? And then we get word that the last potential flight that might take off is leaving from the airport, and we have to fucking get it together. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm getting on this goddamn flight. So I steal my nerve, and I steal my nerve pain, and the next morning, my best friend, she runs out in the rain, she gets breakfast and packs my suitcase, and I would not have packed it that way, but like, you can, beggars cannot be choosers in these situations, right? <laughs> And then Stacy and other bachelorettes carry me down and all my belongings down four flights of stairs as I'm like, fuck shit, like, fuck you, bitch. Thank you so much, you're an angel. You know what I mean? Because it's like, and to just to explain how much movement hurts, like, 
I don't know if you saw that. I lifted my foot like barely. And that's what like makes my whole spine feel as if it's being electrified. So any movement is killing me. And so we like run to a taxi driver and we're like, hello, we are dumb gringas. And we have a question for you. Can you get us to the airport as fast as possible? But like smooth is better, you know, because this bitch has a broken spine. And he's like, honestly, sure. Uh, I'll try my best. So we get to the airport and the bachelorette's like, just go out in force. They're like, you get a wheelchair for her. Like you talk about making the flight and they get me a wheelchair and they wheel me as far and as carefully as they can. And they wheel me up to a couple at my gate and they're like, will you adopt this woman? And the couple is like, this is an adult. What are you? We didn't, we never wanted to have kids. We chose not to. And they're like, please take care of her. And Maria and Carlos did take care of me and they told the flight attendant, they were like, she's unwell. We don't understand all the details, but like be very careful with her. And so next thing I know, I'm in the geriatric line of people who need to be put on a stretcher and then I'm being put on a stretcher and carried up onto this flight and everyone is so kind and helpful. But if I'm being honest, they did drop me at one point and then caught me and it was like the worst pain of my entire life. And I was like, oh, but I love you, but fuck, you know? And so like I get on the plane and then I get to Mexico City. My brother helps me and I go through many more airports, more than I needed to. And I'm wheelchair to all of them. And guys are always like watching me go to the bathroom and get back in the wheelchair. And it's like a whole disaster. And I get back to LA and I'm like, those most painful three days of my fucking life. And... Then as I took stock of this like hurricane of gestures to get me out of a literal hurricane, I realized I had thought that I was alone, but I was just looking at support in such a narrow view of romantic love. I had friends supporting me. I had family supporting me. I had complete ass strangers supporting me and my like occasionally naked body and not like a sexy naked situation. And I realized ultimately we, you guys are in this too, we all are alone. We all are to ourselves save for those, you know, precious moments. But even if you're married and have a ring on your finger, those moments aren't guaranteed to you. So the who was 17 bachelorettes who got our asses out of a hurricane. The what was me on the dance floor whipping my hair back and forth so hard that I did tear my dress. <laughs> the where was the wedding in Tamales Bay. Also, I should say the who was like other people, not just the bachelorettes. Like there's a DJ, there's an officiant, like a bunch people go to weddings, you know what I mean? And like Corinne's like family is also there. The when was after, you know, we escaped this experience together. And the why was because single or not, bamboo spine or not, my back was okay that day and I was gonna celebrate the shit out of the people I loved. Thank you guys. I'm going away to leave you, love I'm going away for a while But I'll return to you sometimes If I go ten thousand miles The storms are on the ocean The heavens may cease to be Motion, love, 
If I prove false to thee Oh, the storms are on the ocean And the heavens may cease to be This world may lose its motion If I prove false to thee So for me, the past few years have been kind of like a pinata. If the pinata was shaped like a virus, the stick was shaped like the total breakdown of society, and anxiety just exploded out of it like a swarm of spiders. <laughs> okay, so I have wrestled with anxiety all my life. But you add to that things like the bicyclist who forced me off the bike path for wearing my mask, or my next door neighbor who yelled at me about my contractors, how do you know those Mexicans are even legal? Or the shooter in Uvalde who murdered those 19 school children, and all of it just made me more eager to hide at home. But look, all of us need other people sometimes. And so my favorite way to stay connected to community became my local farmer's market up in my little beach town of Ventura. And I felt so safe there, you know, strolling down the main street with its vintage shops and its historic Spanish mission and buying happy foods like juicy strawberries or spicy poblano peppers from these really friendly local farmers. And I even liked like rubbing elbows with my neighbors who can at least agree on one thing, like California produce is the best. But then last September, one Saturday, I'm at the market swinging my little favorite version of Guadalupe tote bag and I'm listening to my favorite busker play this beautiful Spanish guitar and I'm on the hunt for plums because I want to make a fruit crisp but all I can find are these stupid pluots you know they're like counterfeit plums and I'm sniffing them thinking meh when suddenly I hear bam 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 and I scream and I turn and I lock eyes with the woman right next to me and I say, that's gunfire. And her eyes say what I don't dare say, mass shooting. And so up and down Main Street, I can see about 300 people scattering, just feet pounding, shouting, people ducking, and this like white hot sting of adrenaline just surges through me and I think, okay, but do I drop or do I run? Which one is gonna get me trampled? And then it happens again. Bam, bam, bam. And I think, okay, run, except like, which way? So over behind the adobe wall of the mission, I can see this smoke just billowing, so not that way. But behind the fruit stand, this door to this shop just swings open, and this young woman waves me in, and I sprint straight toward her, and a few other people follow, and we're going through this shop. I think they sell clothes or gifts. doesn't matter. We follow her to the back room as we hear it again. Bam, bam, bam! And this one woman just plows through the rear exit like she is not going to stop until she hits the Pacific Ocean a half mile away. And I'm like, do I follow her? Like, back outside? So I, I'm looking these 
Half a dozen total strangers and I are all just blinking at each other in this one horrifying realization. None of us knows what to do. And my eyes are just darting from person to person to face to face. But I'll tell you, the faces are all kind of like blank to me. Because see, all I can picture are those school kids from Uvalde who the shooter left with no faces at all. And this thought makes me feel ridiculous. Like here I am, middle-aged, life half over, clinging desperately to what's left of it, when those kids lost everything. And then I think, did she lock the front door? Would it even matter? I mean, the bullets will just shatter the glass. And then I'm like looking around. I think we're in a, because it's this big barren room, but maybe it's a storeroom. And I'm looking, but there's no place to hide. And then I realize I don't hear any gunshots anymore. And no sirens, just this long silence. Like, like an old Western after the shootout. And I think, well, how long do we wait? I feel like I should know. I feel like I should have planned for this. Like mass shootings are so common. Actually, and you know what? This isn't even the first time I faced the threat of death by gunfire. In my 20s, in the 1980s, I worked at a steakhouse in Lakewood. Uh, I was a hostess and I had a crush on this really hot waiter. And one night after work, he walked me to my car and we hung around in the parking lot next to my car, flirting till well after hours, when suddenly three cop cars came tearing into the parking lot, and they surrounded us, and they got out, and they explained that somebody had reported a robbery at the restaurant. And I'm so stunned, it takes a minute to realize, like, we're the suspects. And so I try to explain, I point at my coworker's uniform, and I'm like, officer, we, we work here. And the lead officer says, well, can I see some ID? I'm like, oh, of course, because, you know, then he can check my story. And so I lean over and I reach into the open door of my car. And he says, don't move. And then I hear the unmistakable, ominous sound of guns clearing holsters. And the only move I make is to just turn my head. And I see three guns pointed right at me. And I say, yeah, ask for my ID. It's in my purse, which is right there. And he says, okay, we'll just pull it out really slowly, which gives me just enough time to like imagine what it might feel like to get shot. But we don't get shot or arrested. Actually, we don't even get an apology, although the lead cop says, well, you know, just don't hang around in parking lots after hours. It's not safe. <laughs> no kidding. So... I tell myself, you know, if any officer ever asks to see my ID again, I'm going to make them walk me through that shit really slowly. But I never, like, make a plan for what am I going to do if I'm ever faced with an active shooter. Although I do remember one time telling myself, like, don't ever run in a straight line, which I ruined on the way into this shop. And we do stay in the shop for, like, maybe five more minutes, but then finally we all just sort of shrug at each other and wander out back onto the street in confusion looking around like, there's no bodies, no carnage, no cops. What, what, what? And I, I look in, at my hand and I realize I'm still carrying this little bag of pluots. Like, I didn't even want these. I ran with them. 
And I look at the woman next to me and I'm like, well, I, I didn't pay for these. And she looks at me and says, well, they're yours now. And I, and I try to laugh, you know, <laughs> no, no. And I go back to the fruit stand to pay. And the market has now got maybe a third of the people it did before. And, and I'm over at the fruit stand and I can hear this nervous chatter just rising around me like, what the hell was that? And the vendor says, well, last year they fired seven times, but this year they only did three. And I'm like, it was, it was planned? And then I hear like something, something honor and something, something salute. And then it hits me. Today is September 10th, the day before September 11th. So it turns out that an army honor guard was doing a 21 gun salute at the mission. The bullets they fired were blanks. So what was up with all that smoke? Well, that would be the steam from the tamales and the kettle corn over in the food court. So I, I take my bag of pluots and I just plop it onto the scale and I'm determined to make this fruit crisp if it kills me. And I say, and I, and I say well, they should have announced it. And the woman next to me says, well, maybe they should stop honoring the dead by firing guns. And I'm just shaking, and I go over to, uh, there's this beautiful, burbling, blue-tiled fountain. It's usually such a peaceful spot. And I go over there, and I get on the phone, and I call my husband and burst into tears. Just then, this young couple comes into the market from that direction. I can tell they just got there because they've got these big grins on their faces. And the guy notices me sobbing and he just frowns at this like public display of emotion. And I look at him like, mister, you have no idea. And I keep talking to my husband and uh, he kind of runs out of comforting things to say. So I say goodbye and then I continue shopping. And on my way out, I pass these uh, folksy oak barrels full of overpriced lemons, and there's a woman hiding behind them, a vendor with mascara just dripping down her face, and she's telling her coworker, like, I don't understand why I'm still crying. And I wanna say, I'll tell you why, because minutes ago you thought you might die, and now you're just right back to work because this is life in America now? But I don't say that because I don't wanna upset her more, so I just move on or I try to. I mean, yeah, I go home, I bake the crisp, the pluots are surprisingly delicious. <laughs> but my real problem doesn't reveal itself until the next night. So I'm supposed to meet a friend next night down in LA for a live show. And I consider staying at home to, you know, like recover from my ordeal, but I tell myself, no, you know, don't be a drama queen, Kara, nothing happened to you. And so I go, and I arrive at this small venue, and it's filling up fast, and it, this makes me really nervous, because I promised my friend I'd save her a seat. So I hurry, and I grab a chair, and I throw my shawl on the chair next to it. But then I get kind of chilly, so I throw the shawl back on. And then I'm like, oh, wait, that was my placeholder. So I 
go back to put it on the chair, but some woman has already set her purse there to save the same seat. And now I'm freaked because my friend is going to think I didn't care about her. But I'm scared to say anything to this woman because maybe she'll think I'm a jerk, like my friend's more important than her friend. But I go ahead and I, I explain my dilemma. And I, I notice I'm like talking too fast, over explaining. And then I'm just repeating myself like, I'm so sorry. This is really my fault. I should move. And I'm spinning in these little circles like there's too many people and too few chairs and I just want to run for the door when the woman just puts a very gentle hand on my shoulder and says I'll move it's not a problem like she's trying to comfort a child but you know I, I'm not comforted and over the next few days more of these panic attacks keep blindsiding me until I realize why because I'm still waiting for someone to kill me. Because you see, it doesn't matter that I wasn't in a mass shooting, because the running is the trauma. And the weirdest part is that the only public gathering where I want to go in the coming weeks, the one place I want to be, is at the farmer's market. Because that's a place where there's a bunch of other people who all went through the same experience. And we're all like, oh my God, that was so crazy last week. I, I know, I was so scared. You, you weren't here? Let us tell you. And it makes me feel better. I will admit to you, though, there is one place that it took me seven months to get up the guts to go back. And it's that shop where I hid. And just two days ago on Saturday... I, I went back inside, and it just so happened that the woman who was working behind the counter is the same woman who threw open the door for me that day. And it took us a moment to realize this because we didn't remember or recognize each other. And I didn't remember how tiny she was. She's so small. And I said, I'm so glad that I ran into you because for months I've been wanting to thank you for being so brave to risk your life for mine. Her eyes filled with tears and she says, you have no idea how much that means to me. But I do, because it means a lot to me too. Because see, even though nobody shot at us, we did run for our lives. And I'm just really grateful I didn't have to run alone. Thanks.
This is Risk. This is Nick Drake behind me now. And we just heard from Kara Lopez Lee, who you can find on Instagram at Kara Lopez Lee. And before that, Michelle Murphy with her story that she calls celebrating the shit out of people you love, which is not to be confused with the scat play story that we ran on the Risk episode <laughs> called Out of the Blue. And you might not feel that that episode is one to recommend to friends and family as an intro to Risk, although so many people have emailed us to say they love that story. But remember, a big, big way you can support the podcast is by teaching people how to access it, by playing your favorite stories for people on car trips or hangouts, by pointing people to our special series that newcomers love, like the funny stuff episodes, the best of risk episodes or the scary story episodes that's all at risk-show.com slash special series and you can use the hashtag listen to risk when you're talking up the show on social media and rate and review the show on apple podcasts and wherever else you see the opportunity to do so and speaking of the best of risk it's that time again we're looking at the best of risk number 29 coming up in a few weeks and so we want to know what your favorite stories from the past six months have been go to risk-show.com best of risk where you'll find a list of all the candidate stories along with brief synopses for each one to jog your memory then you can vote on your favorites and the poll closes on september 12th at noon eastern so let us know again that's at risk-show.com slash best of risk it really really works best when lots of people vote and as always the ultimate way to support the show is by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk like david mcgrath and ainsley have recently done Thank you so much, David and Ainsley. Now, sometimes we even make some of our bonus content over at Patreon free, even for those who don't yet have memberships over there, so people can get a taste of what it's like. So this week, we're doing just that by featuring an extraordinary story that even non-members can hear by David Sakaris. And I'm spending all this time, like, I'm I'm drawing pictures of lions, I'm studying Bobby Kennedy, which I get obsessed with, and I start parting my hair on the right, which Bobby parted <laughs> to his right, his brother Jack pointed it parted to the left, I part my hair to the right to this day because of Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> that and well over 100 hours of more bonus content at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. And if you want to know another way of donating, just email me at kevin at risk show.com. We'll be right back. We're back. Coming up next week, we'll be featuring the content we end up scheduling for next week. But that's next week, folks. And today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. So look, see the sights. The endless summer nights. Go play the game.
whoever you are, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You can always depend on the kindness of strangers. Now here's a tip from Brad you won't regret.